All right, would you get your Bible out to Romans? I mean to Ruth, I'm sorry. It started with an R, to Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. If you have a Bible or a smartphone or a tablet, turn there. And if you don't have one of those, there's a Bible in front of you. We'd love for that to be our gift to you. Take it home with you. Uh, write your name in it and bring it back next week. We're going to be diving into the book of Ruth uh, this morning. And more, we're going to look at an overview of it. Now, as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Show of hands. How many of you, how many of you have sensed, whether you're young or whether you're old alike, I think this is going to apply to all of you, how many of you, show of hands, have sensed and felt hopelessness in your life before? Show of hands. Show of hands. How many of you, keep them up, keep them up, all right? How many of you have sensed and felt hopelessness in your life before? Now, hold them up. How many of you have sensed hopelessness? Show of hands. Raise your hand up. Hold them up. All right, now. I want you to look around. Just hold them up. Keep them up. Now look around to your right, your left. Look around. Okay. All right. Now you can put your hands down. Now, the reason why that is important is because a lot of times when we feel hopeless, we think we're the only one. We think that we're the only one feeling and going through what we've just gone through and what we're experiencing in our life. But as you just learned, you're not the only one. And that's really, really good. And, and there's, a, there's a couple of reasons why we feel hopeless and we feel like we're the only one. The first reason is, is that preachers, many times, you know, we're culpable in this thing. And, and here's why. Because we say pithy little statements and we make these, these assumptions and make you feel isolated and make you feel like, well, you're the only one going through it. We, th we say things like, you just need more prayer or you just need to read more scripture or you have sinned in your life, right? We're basically saying, basically, it's your fault. That's what us preachers have done in our lifetime. Uh, another reason why that we've experienced hopelessness and felt like we were the only one is because of other people. And here's how it happens, right? So you're going through this hopeless season, and all of a sudden you see so-and-so walk by you, or you see them live their life, and you're like, wait a minute. Their kids are more well-behaved than my kids. They're making twice I'm making. They look better than me. They got more hair on, my head. on their head. And, and I'm a much better person than they are. You're going, they don't go to church on Sundays. They golf or they're gone all weekend long. They, I live life right. Look at them. And you just get a sense that, am I the only one feeling hopeless? Another, another reason why we feel hopeless and that we're the only one is that other Christians, other Christians, You'll be having this horrible day or this horrible week or this horrible month, hopeless to the core. And, and you'll, you'll bump into somebody that you know or you, in the hallway out here or on the phone or in the community around you. And they'll be like, hey, I just, I just want to tell you, I had the best day. And, and you're like, really? And they're like, yeah. And so they tell you this story about how they had to have this meeting in downtown Louisville and they were running late. And they're, and they're, and they're needing a parking spot. And they're like, so I prayed and poof, the best parking spot right in front of the building where um, I needed to go was there and I pulled in I parallel parked perfectly it was the best meeting ever closed a deal isn't that great and you're like shut up right like I don't want to hear that at all and you feel isolated you feel like you're the only one that feels hopeless but you're not you're not the only one that feels hopeless and, and in this age, when we mourn the victims 
who have passed away after the worst shooting in modern history in Vegas. There are so many questions and so little answers. And there goes our hope. And, and hope is like the one thing that we need in this life more than ever before is hope. Yet it feels like so many times that hope is a commodity that we just can't seem to grasp or have in our life. And here's the deal. I'm not going to give you a simple formula. I'm not going to give you a, a pithy little statement that you're supposed to remember and be cute. But what I want you to understand is, is I want you to be encouraged today by what we're going to share. I'm going to share um, uh, real quickly with you three things based upon an overview of Ruth that we're going to look at together. Three things that I really feel like that will be an encouragement to you that will turn your heart, turn your mind towards hopeful things. We're going to look at the book of Ruth, and as we learned last week, the book of Ruth has been called the greatest short story ever written. If you were to read Ruth from beginning to end, it'd only take you 25 minutes, tops. It's a small book, it's only four chapters long, and also Ruth has been called the greatest fairy tale as well. Now, my daughters love fairy tales. If you are a dad of a daughter, then you have watched your share of fairy tales, my friend, I'm sure. And that's what dads do, right? And so their favorite fairy tale is Cinderella. And Cinderella is, you know, the story of an evil stepmom and the two evil stepsisters who hate their other stepsister, Cinderella. And Cinderella is rescued by the charming prince and a magical pumpkin. J. Vernon McGee says, Ruth reads like a novel, but it is not fiction. See, the fairy tale of Ruth is real. Most conservative scholars, they believe that Samuel wrote Ruth. And if that's the case, then he begins through the inspiration of, of God the first few words of the book of Ruth. And he writes this, In the days when the judges ruled. We learned last week, in the days that the judges ruled weren't so good days. They were, there was political unrest. Everyone was making their own morality. Truth was relevant. Truth was just what you made it. In the days when the judges ruled. Another translation is, is this. Now it came to pass. It sounds a lot like in a land far, far away, doesn't it? So what I want to do is I want to give you an overview of the book of Ruth real quickly. Okay, so we're introduced to this man named Elimelech, and he has a wife. His name, her name is Naomi, and they have two sons, and they're going through a famine. And so Elimelech takes his family, and they move him. He moves 50 miles to Moabite country. He's not supposed to do it, but he does it. And for 10 years, things are good. Things are great. He, his two sons, they meet Moabite women. One is Orpah, and the other one is Ruth. And for 10 years, things are good, but then something tragically happens. Elimelech trades one famine in for three deaths and funerals, and one of those funerals is his own life. And so they're now in a state of despair. And the, really, the only three to mourn is Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. And Orpah goes, look, it's been good, it's been real, but I need to go back to my family and where I'm from, which I'm not really... I'm not really blaming her for wanting to do that. And so, tragically, Orpah leaves. And Naomi is sitting there going, well, of course, it, Ruth is going to leave. Ruth is going to leave as well. I mean, that just makes sense. But in chapter 1 of verse 14, we read differently. It says this, that Ruth clung to her. 
I mean, they were in a different country. The family was dead. They were bankrupt. They were hopeless. And Ruth is clinging to Naomi. Naomi said, well, your sister-in-law is going back to her, her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, now, now pause right here for just a second. Look at me. I need all of the daughter-in-laws in the house to just look at me. Any daughter-in-laws? Raise your hands real quickly. Okay, this is for you. Okay, this is free advice right here. If you have always wanted to connect and always kiss up to your mother-in-law, this is the best speech you could ever, like, for, just put some new words to it, and, and you will be daughter-in-law of the year, okay? Ruth says this to Naomi. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even death separates you and me. So Ruth is staring at a hopeless situation. They're bankrupt. They're destitute. They are completely on their own. And, and those words mean that she's going to leave everything that she knew to be true. She's going to leave her family. She's going to leave her country. And oh, by the way, Jews, they weren't really liked in Moabite country. And oh, by the way, Moabites weren't really liked in Jewish cultures. So she's basically going to go to a, a culture in, in an area in Bethlehem where they don't want to meet a mo. They don't want to talk. She's going to be an outcast. And then on top of it, she leaves all of her worldview behind and puts a new worldview in front of her. And she sees the world now through, through the God of Yahweh. All this. She's making a statement of faith. She's making a statement of hope in a hopeless situation. So they travel 50 miles back from Moab all the way back to Bethlehem and they're walking down the dusty streets of Bethlehem and a couple of her friends see Naomi. Hey, Naomi! How are you? Did you get our letter? Yeah, I know I, we had another baby, but how are you doing? What's going on? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And she goes on to tell the story about what happened and and things are, they're destitute. And, and, and at this point in their journey, they have no money. And, and in that culture, women did not have a, really a way to, 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 to make money. And so what they basically had to do is settle for somewhat of a begging situation. Naomi says, okay, look, my husband had a cousin. And that cousin was pretty wealthy. And he owns a field. Here's what I want you to do, Ruth. I want you to go to that field. And I want you to basically gather up the crumbs from uh, the, the farmer's and I want you to t pick those crumbs up and we'll eat on those few grains. So she goes and does that. And while she's doing that, the owner of the field catches and, and sees her. And he pulls over an employee to him. This is Boaz. And he, and he pulls over an employee and Boaz asks the employee, Hey, who is that? Who is that chica out in that field right there? Who is that? And, and he goes, well, that's, that's Ruth. And, and that's your distant cousin, Boaz, because um, Elimelech's, that's Elimelech's daughter-in-law, and, you know, her husband died. He goes, really? Well, short story, even shorter, okay, they meet, sparks fly, there's a midnight proposal we're going to get to later on. There's romance that happens, we're going to get to in a little bit. And what happens is, is they get married. And then, after the marriage, then the grandchildren happen, and then it's the end. That's the end of the story. How many of you are really grateful for an end and there's grandchildren involved, right? Yeah. And what I want to share with you today is this, that in the middle of hopelessness, 
Ruth, Ruth is able to lean upon a few things that we're going to see and we're going to draw out this morning. Three things. And if you have your listening guide, you can follow along with me. The first one that we see is this, that, that Ruth, she leans upon and understands the first storyline, and that is that God is loving and that he is caring. That God is loving and that he is caring. What is striking about in the book of Ruth is that there's an example of what this culture would call a goel. All right, and a, a goel is, means the word kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer is one that would rescue someone like Ruth. And, and I love it how in striking fashion, Boaz, what would happen is, is that he would rescue Ruth from the situation and demonstrate what the love of Christ really looks like for us today in our culture and in, in, in our life. And there's one author in particular that made several observations, and I love this. He made the observation um, that, first of all, that there's this love and pursuit of Boaz for Ruth. See, in this culture, a relative of Ruth would have been able to claim first dibs on Ruth, to say, you know what, I would like to marry that woman, and so I want to be the kinsman redeemer. I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to woo her. If she will have me, I will marry her. And that's exactly what happens. And the love of Boaz for Ruth is a great example of what the love of Jesus for his church. Paul would write in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. See, Boaz also finds Ruth bankrupt and destitute. See, even though he wasn't responsible, even though it wasn't his fault that she was bankrupt, even though it wasn't his fault that she didn't have any money, he decides, you know, I'm going to take on her bankruptcy and I'm going to absolve that. I'm going to resolve the issue. And Jesus Christ, he did the same thing for me and for you, for those who are in Christ. See, we as humans are bankrupt and destitute in our sin. And no prayer, no good works, nothing is going to get us out of that to undo our sinful place. Yet the Bible says this, that while we were still sinners, Romans chapter 8, verse 5, while we were still yet sinners, while we were destitute, while we were bankrupt, Christ died for us. Isn't that good? And then Paul would celebrate with the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He would say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. One author says it this way. The legal tender of Boaz was money. The legal tender of Christ was his life's blood. Boaz also finds her completely marginalized. And here's how he finds her marginalized. They walk into Bethlehem and they run up to Naomi. How are you doing, Naomi? And she says, I left empty and now I am, I mean, I left full and now I am empty. And Ruth is standing right beside her. Have you ever been in a certain circumstance where you, you're in a pack of people and you feel like that you're all by yourself and no one is acknowledging your presence? Have you ever felt that way before? This is Ruth. She's marginalized. She's kicked to the curb. Basically, that Naomi doesn't even want to admit that Ruth is in the equation. 
And she's thinking to herself, wait a minute, I gave up everything for you. I, I, I supported you, and now you're going to treat me like this? Man, that's cold. That's real cold. Naomi didn't take Ruth into consideration. She, 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 there was hopelessness at the very core. But Christ, he, brush, he finds the brushed aside. He looks for the forgotten. And even when God feels far from us, he can be found faithful. And even when he is far and he feels far from us, his faithfulness is shown over and over and over again. And even though Naomi brushed Ruth aside, the story is predominantly about Ruth. See, Christ with great passion willingly died for the sinners of this world, the forgotten, the ones that have been brushed aside. If you read Ruth, and I would suggest you do over the next few weeks as we walk through this series together, if you read through it, what you're going to find also is, is a man named Boaz who is passionate in pursuing his future wife, Ruth. He proposes to her, and she says yes. And you can just sense the joy when you read the section. You can just sense that he got excited. It wasn't a business transaction like, will you marry me? Yes? Okay, good. No, it wasn't like that. It was like, will you marry me? Yes! She said yes! I'm not alone anymore! That's what he... And it, it reminds me of the, the time that I that I proposed to my wife, Sarah. I proposed to Sarah, and I had this long speech prepared. And the only words that I got out of my mouth were, I love you, will you marry me? All the other things just kind of got all jumbled up. And she gives me this big hug, and I'm thinking, what is this, goodbye? I mean, is, is there a yes in this? I mean, what's going on? And she goes, yes, 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 yes. And I was so excited. It was one of the best moments of my life. And, and I don't know how many married men are here today, but wasn't that one of the best moments of your life? Wasn't that one of the best moments in your life? Right? Shake your heads, guys. Just go like this. There you go. It'd be a long ride home for some of you. See, Christ, he demonstrated his love for you passionately pursuing with your face, with your name on his mind as he walked to the cross. See, Jesus, he's the groom waiting anxiously for the bride to walk down the aisle. So is when Christ, when one sinner repents and comes home. J. Vernon McGee wrote, Redemption is the love story of a kinsman who neither counted the cost nor figured up the profit and loss, but for joy paid an exorbitant price for one that he loved. I love that. See, the book of Ruth, it demonstrates the love of Christ and his care. You see, she may have felt like God was far, but even in the midst of God feeling far, he was found faithful to Ruth and faithful to Naomi. And God did not have to provide redemption. But he provided out of his own love and care for them. He provided that out of his own passion for them. And furthermore, God, he did it all. That means that any time that someone has been redeemed, it has nothing to do with the one that has been redeemed. It has everything to do with the one that is redeeming. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that I can do. It's all been put upon the Redeemer. And I want to ask you today, are, are you redeemed? Have you placed your whole trust, your whole hope upon this Redeemer, Jesus Christ? You know, another thing that, that, that I see from this, 
about God's love and his care is that at times in my life, I've struggled with God's love. Have you ever done this? I've struggled to, to think about the fact that I know me. I know the mistakes that I made. I know my past. I know what I've done in the secret. I know what took place throughout my life. And I continue to do, and all the failures I have. And, and, I, and, and sometimes I just kind of struggle with the love of God. Like, God, how could you love me? How could you really, truly, passionately pursue me? Have you ever struggled with that? Maybe you had a dad or you're a mom or something happened in middle school or, or high school or in college or, or even it, lately where you've, something has happened and it's caused great hurt and you don't feel very lovable. But God, he loves you so very much and he cares for you. See, we not only see that God, his, his love is right there, his care is right there for Naomi and Ruth, but we also see in this hopeless situation that God, number two, he provided his rest. That God, he provided his rest. Think about it with me. Naomi, she was bitter. She was resentful. She said, no, 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 my name is not Naomi, it is what? Mara. I, I'm bitter. Have you ever been there? Now, I don't blame her. You lose two sons and a husband within a very small frame of time. You may be a little bit bitter. You may be a little bit resentful. But have you ever been there before? There was these two monks and they were walking down a road and they come to the, a river. And right before the river and the bank of the river, they meet a, a, an older lady. And she's there. She's sitting down and she can't cross the river. And they say, can we help you? And she said, yeah, I can't cross the river. I'm upset because there was no bridge that was installed here. So the monks say, okay, well, we'll help you. And so they join hands, and they help her forge the river all the way to the other side. They carry her in spots that the water is very deep, and they get her to the other side. And then they get to the other side, and they place her down. She says, I need a rest. You guys go ahead. Thank you so very much. And they walk away. The monks do. A couple miles down the road, the monks, the second monk says to the first monk, he says, man, my back is hurting. I don't know if I can keep going. But the first monk says, oh, you can keep going. You're good. And, and so they keep walking, and, and they, they go a couple more miles, and the second monk stops and goes, I can't make it anymore. My back's hurting. That, that lady was heavier than I thought, and, and I've got dirt all over me. And he turns to the first monk and says, well, why aren't you? Why doesn't your back hurt? And why aren't, why aren't you upset like I am? And, and the first monk says, well, I put that woman down miles ago. You're still carrying her. You know what I'm saying, don't you? Yeah. Maybe you've been carrying a burden way too long. Maybe you've been resentful or bitter. Or maybe there's just pain, and you've been carrying it around with you for even decades. God wants to provide his rest for you. Charlotte Elliott, she was in England in 1822. She was a bitter, angry woman. She was... Uh, she was handicapped to a certain extent, and because of that, she was so angry. She said multiple times, if God really loved me, if God really cared for me, if God really wanted me to have rest, then he wouldn't have made me the way he made me and wouldn't allow what he did to me. And his family, her family didn't know what to do with her. So what her family does, they invite their pastor over for dinner. Like, he's going to have all the answers. But they, they invite their pastor over, and it's Dr. Caesar Milan. And he visits her in the Elliott home in 1822. And they sit down to dinner, and she, something happens to her, and she starts railing on God. She cusses out God and everyone else at the dinner table. And they're so embarrassed that they all get up out of disgust and leave, and leave her and the pastor by themselves. 
And she says to the pastor, well, what are you going to say now, pastor? And he looks at her, and he's completely unfazed, and he said, you are tired of yourself, aren't you? You're holding to your hate and your anger because you have nothing else in the world to cling to. And consequently, you have become sour and bitter and resentful. And she asks, well, what's the cure? And he said, the cure is the faith that you despise. And as they talked, Charlotte began to soften. As she began to soften, she said, well, if I wanted to become a Christ follower, if I wanted to find rest in God, what would I do with all the things that I have in my life? And, and how do I accomplish this joy that you have in your life? And he says, you would give yourself to God. And just as you are now with your fightings and your fears and hates and loves and pride and, and shame, you just come just as you are. And she said, I just come just as I am. And he said, yes, just as you are. And that day she would give her life to Christ, that she would place her trust in Jesus as her Lord and her Savior, and her life would change. And a couple years later, her brother would be raising money for something that was a very, very, very important project um, for children who were poor. And he asks Charlotte, would you write a poem? She writes this poem, and the poem is sold all over England. And later on, uh, 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 music was put to those words, and it became the most famous invitational hymn in history. Just as I am without one plea, but thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. See, Ruth was the rest Naomi needed. And then there was grandchildren, and not much rest, but it was good. And Boaz was the rest that Ruth needed. And then with Boaz and Ruth, eventually Jesus came. And Jesus was the rest and is the rest that our souls need. And I want to ask, does your soul need rest? Because he provides it to you today. See, not only do we see Naomi and, and Ruth lean upon the, the love of God in their hopelessness and, and lean upon the God who provided his rest for their life, but also, number three, they experience God's undeniable providence. They discover God's undeniable providence. Providence is this, that God is directing the circumstance of life so that his will is accomplished. I, I want you to think about Esther for a moment. In, in the book of Esther, her, she is there for such a time as this, right? That everything has been aligned according to perfect plan. That there is undeniable providence in play. Not only in Esther's life, but, but as we see in the storyline of Ruth. And we're going to see this time and time again. And we see this in a couple different ways of his providence. Number one, we see it as him providing a leader for the people of Israel. Now that doesn't maybe mean a lot to you. Because you don't maybe care that much about history, number one. And number two, how does that have to relate to you? Well, let me tell you, it was a big deal for them. Because a leader meant everything, just like a leader today for you means everything a lot of times. And God provides a leader, and it's through Abraham. He promises Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And your descendants are going to be a blessing to all of mankind. And through the line of Abraham comes Jacob. And through Jacob's own son, eventually comes the son David. And David would sit on the throne of Israel, but eventually through David's line would eventually come the Savior of the world. 
And see, as history unfolds, Matthew writes his gospel to show that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment, God's providence. Isn't that incredible? And the second way we see God's undeniable providence here is that he works in the most smallest of ways. That he, every single detail has been worked out. Did you know that? Every single detail has been worked out in your life? See, I, I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in coincidence. I don't believe that you just happened to be here. I don't believe you just happened to stroll into Grace Sunday. I don't believe that I just happened to be on this stage. I don't believe that you just happened to be here with, with, by yourself or with someone that is next to you. I don't believe that at all. I believe that there is a providential guidance of all of our stories in our life. And I love how one author made this observation. He said, one of Elimelech's sons just happened to marry Ruth, and then Ruth just happened to be in a field owned by Boaz, and Boaz just happened to be in the same area, and then Boaz just happened to be single and a godly man. And oh, by the way, Boaz just happened to be the son of a prostitute named Rahab, who would be part of the lineage of Christ. And oh, by the way, just happened to be to bring Jewish and Gentile lineage into the line of Christ, which would mean that he would die not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for the whole world. And John 3.16 all comes into play. Isn't that incredible? And that's not just something that you can make up. That's amazing. And that is undeniable providence. See, when our faith is gone, when our hopelessness seems overwhelming, the questions may confound us. And we may be at a loss. But the narrative of Ruth shouts an undeniable providence through its pages. See, Ruth may have been wondering, well, why did my husband die? And am I going to get remarried? Why am I single? Is my mother-in-law ever going to love me? Is this God that I started following going to provide for me? Will I ever remarry? <laughs> Boaz may have been wondering, when will I meet Mrs. Ruth? We may be wondering, why did this awful shooting in Vegas happen? When will the cancer end? When will I ever marry? When will I remarry? Will I always be going through this? Why God? When God? How God? So many questions and so little answers. Other than this one thing, that he has the pen. And he's writing the story and the story he's writing includes you and it includes me. And that story is better than anything you've ever seen and everything you could ever think of. What are you facing today? What are you going through? What questions do you have? See, in a hopeless situation, Ruth, she would experience God's love, his rest, and his providence. And she would lean upon those things. She would lean upon those things in the hardest of times. And her life would come to an end, but it would not be the end. And here's why it would not be the end, because she's no longer leaning. She's standing. And she's standing in the presence of God. There is no the end for Ruth. She stands in the presence of God where there are no more tears. There is no sadness. There's no sorrow. And she is standing, and everything is as it should be for Ruth and Naomi and for those who are in Christ.